0: Hi and welcome to Make It Make Sense with Sreka Taneidra Dharaman, a podcast that aims to demystify the less than transparent publishing industry by talking to authors from historically underrepresented backgrounds. I believe that the more we make sense of how things work on the inside, the less we feel as though we're on the outside because learning from other authors, editors and agents that have made sense of their journeys should hopefully inspire many more to embark on their very own. Each week, I'll be asking a new interviewee the things they've made sense of in their careers as well as anything they'd like to make sense of for fellow writers. Today's guest is award-winning cover designer, Michaela Alceno. Born in Australia, Michaela moved to London in 2013. She moved without a job in hand and applied for design jobs until she landed her first role with Transworld Publishing. She spent time working for both Penguin Random House UK and HarperCollins UK and since 2018 decided to go freelance. Michaela's covers are beautiful and born from really understanding the themes held within the manuscript she works with. You would recognise her cover on books such as The Secret Diaries of Child Ignatius Sancho by Patterson Joseph, Jennifer Saint's Atlanta, Electra and Ariadne, The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams and the hardcover for Below Deck by Sophie Hardcastle. You can tell that Michaela really loves her job and her passion for design and art comes through in this conversation. We talk about the importance of sharing knowledge, mentorship and persistence. She is wildly persistent and is encouraged by the challenges put in front of her. If she falls in love with a book and wants to design that cover she'll do everything to make it happen. It's no surprise then that she's won numerous awards and in 2021 she was the bookseller rising star and this year she won designer of the year at the British Book Awards. I hope you're as charmed as I was by Michaela. Hi Michaela and welcome to Make It Make Sense. Hi thanks for having me. I'm so excited to actually speak to you because I think this is one of the most interesting parts of the publishing process when story and art come together. And I think so many people are interested in cover design and whether it's readers or authors or um, people within the industry, I think it's such an interesting process. And it's also, you know, they always say not to judge a book by its cover, but everyone does.
1: I hate that saying because it makes my job completely redundant and I'm like everyone does it that saying needs to go and plus like (laughs) if you know for my whole job if someone goes to a bookstore and picks it up because they're interested by the cover that's my job done. But if people keep saying that, it drives me mental (laughs) because it's just like, it's not true and people do it all the time. And that's my whole job. Like that's my aim for people to judge a book by its cover and then go and pick it up. (laughs) Correct.
0: Yeah. And I think also, you know, it's when I think of how do we come to books that we read ourselves, obviously a lot is Mm. by recommendation and word of mouth. But so much is by seeing a book on the shelf mm-hmm. and at least picking it up enough to want to read the blurb or the summary or whatever it is, and I think it is so important. But the question I always start the podcast on is—I <laughs> already <laughs> distracted us oh, from—love it. The format. <laughs> um, what did you want to be when you were younger?
1: Oh gosh, so um, this is—it's—it's it's cute, but it's embarrassing as well. Um, so I, for years years um from the age of nine wanted to be a director
0: um, Oh, film.
1: from nine um, yeah from nine and um what really tried to solidify that I say try because um I changed my mind eventually <laughs> um as you do when you're that young um I watched uh, I think it came out 2001 the first Lord of the Rings and Mm -hmm. after I watched that film which was you know it was game-changing for that time Um, and the scale that one Peter Jackson kept getting rejected because he wanted to make three films and eventually when he did the scale of these films and this trilogy was amazing but like You know, that was my thing. And then eventually when I was a teenager, I loved watching anime um, Mm. and Dragon Ball Z was my vibe. Um, So I wanted to be a cartoonist and, you know, get into kind of, that side of things uh-huh. um, and then I you know the way I got into drawing was drawing anime constantly uh-huh. and never never listening in class because I was <laughs> so busy drawing <laughs> um, but yeah and then eventually you know I found that um I was very good at art um, and um uh, when I was in year 11 um my Uh, on the I don't know if you know every country is the same but I'm sure you know in terms of um, when you're in year 11 you get to choose kind of the electives that you want Uh um and uh basically uh the art line was the same time as maths and (laughs) um and I was like in a dilemma because you know I was like what are my parents going to say if I say I don't I want to drop maths Uh um and so we, my sister and I, because my sister, I, I'm an identical twin, and so we both um, wanted to do art because we're both good at art. Um, and while I was drawing anime in class, she was doing the same thing. Um, <laughs> and basically, we told our parents, and we're just like, look, can we drop maths and take art instead? And my dad was like, look, I will only let you do it is if you create a PowerPoint presentation as to why you want to take art over maths and the importance of that um and we kind of took our that through going you know we promised to try and strive to be the best that we can be and um and then you know obviously eventually they did let us um take it and so that's one thing I do love about my parents is that um so long as we work hard in what we want to do they were always very supportive so So yeah, and then, you know, and then I took a digital media degree, um, but no one ever told me about the job that I'm doing now. So, um, so yes, a cartoonist and a director.
0: Great. So it, it does tie into everything you kind of are doing now, doesn't it? Quite nicely. Um, But how did you come to this role then? If no one really told you or you never realized this could be a role for you?
1: Um, so basically I um I moved from Sydney, Australia to London in 2013, um, and had just finished a digital digital media degree. Um, and I decided because everyone was moving to Melbourne um for arts and for jobs, um, because Sydney at that time was, I would say creatively not dead, but it was for the elite, like for yeah. a new starter, they weren't very open t- um, to letting kind of newbies from fresh from uni to kind of get in as mm-hmm. it, it was just it was fierce competition. So everyone was moving to Melbourne and I was like, you know what, I just want to move elsewhere, <laughs> you know, yeah, further away that I'm not competing with, the, you know, the, the limited amount of jobs in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. So I moved to London, um, and I literally applied to, um, 200 jobs, give or take, um, Mm -hmm. anything that said in, you know, on the internet, a design job, I applied for it. Um, and it was a full-time job applying for a full-time job, um, and literally um literally the first phone call that i got for an interview um was from transworld publishers which is part of penguin random house wow. and they invited me in and because i was so excited because i had waited 3 months for a phone call because in london it can take forever um i was like yes just tell me when and where to be there and i showed up and i was like i had no clue about what this job entailed because i had applied to so many it just kind of went over my head and i was like i will just make it up as I go along and figure out <laughs> while I'm there um, and then I figured out that you could design books for a living and get to read books and you know and it just sold me completely um, but it wasn't until I kind of moved to Collins about three and a half years later did I really fall in love with the job so okay
0: yeah. <laughs> so when you moved to London you had no design no. Role or did you move over on a working holiday visa
1: no so my so my dad is Chilean my mom is Argentinian German mm-hmm. um but she was because she was born in Germany um and then at the age of 11 moved to Argentina um uh, she still had her German passport so um, we became German citizens and before the Brexit years um, we were able to come over and just work um, as EU citizens so um, thank you mum <laughs> for keeping that passport. If you
0: hadn't locked any were you just going to work in anything or would you have gone home?
1: Um, I'm very stubborn I think I would have liked to think that I actually did interview for some pub jobs just to keep me going because by the time I interviewed the first interview at Transworld Publishers I literally had 50 pounds in my account left from all my savings. <laughs> I had only saved up for 3 months hoping that I'd get a job by then. Um so it's funny how these timings work. <laughs> if I if I didn't get that job I Would have liked to think that I would have just committed to a pub job until, you know, until I got it. But, um yes, I was very blessed in the timings of everything.
0: (laughs) That's amazing. And also so I can't imagine walking to to a role that you don't really know much Mm -hmm. about and then it's just, you know, this amazing opportunity (laughs) to also design covers and read books, which is kind of such a, it must be such a joy as well as that to be part of your day. um. You said that uh, you really fell in love with the role when you moved to HarperCollins. What was the difference for you in that time?
1: I think one thing, and now being kind of, uh, I would say, a senior and I also are direct as a freelance because I'm a freelancer now, um, I, I've, I've seen juniors nowadays um, and I, like, I've i been, uh, you know, working alongside a couple of juniors um, t- and listening to kind of the hardships they have to take on because you know when you come into a job um certain jobs throw you straight into the deep end and uh there might um you know and I might talk about this a bit later but um there's not enough mentorship or sitting down to teach you things they just expect you to learn um and so when I was at Transworld I felt like I there's a lot of things that I just had to try and teach myself quickly um and so it, it's a very overwhelming thing as a junior, even though, you, you know, there are some juniors out there that get taught about the publishing industry and designing for book covers. But learning new IT systems, learning um, new programs, learning um, publishing terminology, learning how certain editors work, how, you know, certain people in the company work. Um, and, I you know, it, it's, it's hard for me to see sometimes when managers forget... That this is what a junior has is having to take on and learn, and being a bit more kind of patient and gracious while they're learning these things. So I think once you know, I became a midweight designer at Transworld, and then eventually moved over to HarperCollins, in which I became a senior, and then eventually, um, after three and a half years, I don't know why it's three and a half years all the time, um, I became a freelancer, <laughs> um, but. Yeah, I think, you know, at Transworld, I found it really difficult to um, mm-hmm. to integrate as much as I did at, at HarperCollins. Um, so, yeah, um, I did find it really hard and I, I almost was very close to changing jobs, um, but I stuck in it and um, I'm very happy that I did because um, I couldn't imagine do- doing anything else.
0: Um, we normally love to talk to writers about their writing craft and I'd like to do the same with you because I don't, I I don't know anything about the process. So I'm going to be a complete layperson, and I'm assuming readers and authors also don't know the ins and outs of it. So when you're given or when you're brought in for a cover, can you take us kind of through the steps you uh, go through
1: so it changes a little bit every time but the beginning stage is quite um quite the same all the time mm-hmm. um so normally I get an email from an art director and editor um saying can we hire you for this job um so I usually just schedule that in um a couple of months beforehand um and for me my biggest process and this is not every designer every most I would say most designers don't read the manuscript um and if they do they just dip into it but for me I find it it's a very very important part of the process for me um I call it my muse um I feel like to design someone's written work and not have any understanding of that written work or be kind of captured by that written work I I think it's almost blasphemy because this is this is someone's you know work that they've put their heart and soul into um and i feel like i get to know things more intimately by reading the manuscript so i start with reading the manuscript if they give it to me if they don't then i work off just a brief but ma- majority of the time i do get given the manuscript um mm-hmm. and then so i also get a brief um which is usually done by the editors um saying you know this is what the book is about this is kind of a good brief will tell you what the book is about what the market is where where they wanted to sit what genre they wanted to sit in um and then they give me comparative covers of what's in the market where they wanted to sit alongside um which helps me get gauge a good understanding of kind of what they want um a bad brief won't have any of that So normally I have to kind of dig a bit more. Um, but that's the joys of when I get given a manuscript. If the brief is not comprehensive enough, mm. um, I at least let the words take control of kind of my vision for the cover. Um, and then I I ask from start date to give me two to three weeks to create first-round concepts. And what first round concepts is, is just creating for me personally, it's usually around six covers, different covers for um for the team to look at and then to evolve one of those covers. Um, And usually if it's working for a publisher, they take it to something called the cover meeting where all the execs sit down and kind of look at the covers and go, hey, no, we like this one or we like the title in this one. Most of the time it's like, like the title in this, you know, we like the elements of this, can we kind of tweak this? Um, So it's never, very rarely does it go, yep, great cover, take it through, stamp of approval and then move on mm-hmm. it's usually a collaborative tweaking process after i create these first round concepts um so yeah i usually do about um and if i illustrate for them i most of the time just do sketches um for them to see kind of what my vision is um and then from there it's just tweaking rounds and um when someone asks me how long does it take i can't give you that answer because um It all depends on how many tweaks it is uh, Mm -hmm. there are and how many kind of uh, voices are helping mold this cover. Um, So sometimes it can take, you know, a couple of months and sometimes it can take to a year um, for a cover to be approved. So, um, yeah, (laughs) that's usually the process. Um, But during that time when I'm creating the first round concepts, I tend to spend a whole one to two days researching kind of Mm -hmm. after reading the manuscript kind of the background of this book um, and kind of the inspirations of this book and then trying to find my inspirations for what I want for the cover. And then eventually I start playing around. Um, I usually start with a blank canvas and just plonking the title and the author name on there just to see how it sits. Because if you've got a very long title, it's harder to kind of you need to figure out how to use the title because the title is the most important thing and then how to harmoniously integrate that with the imagery that you're going to put on the cover so if you get like for example I got a cover um a brief with the title Hannah Green and her Unfeasibly mundane existence <laughs> Oh, wow. So I had to try and go, okay, how can I fit this very long title? But I ended up trying to, it's a beautiful book, and I really enjoyed that manuscript. Um, and basically it's like this um young girl befriending the devil. Um, and um so I ended up just putting like a devilish snake on the cover and with this girl girl looking up at the snake, um, and then integrating the type in and out of weaving out of the snake. But I feel like if you Don't put the type first onto the blank canvas. Mm -hmm. You don't know what you're working with. Um, Mm -hmm. And then eventually I just stop playing um, because the creative process is all about play um, until Mm -hmm. you kind of start finding roots that you enjoy and like. um, And then eventually, um, you know, I have six covers to show the cover meeting. (laughs) And the six covers are all wildly different
0: or is there elements that, Is that the point, that they should be so different from each other? Um,
1: I try and make them as different as they can be. Um, Sometimes I integrate certain similar elements into all the covers, but normally I will try and do as distinct as possible um, Mm -hmm. just so that people can see and I think for me I always like throwing in a wild card um because if I read a manuscript and go actually you know I would like to do what cover that's wildly different to what's being asked um I try and do that as well yeah and I think it
0: must make the decision process just a little bit easier and your process a bit easier (laughs) it is so clearly you know there's defining elements in each one that you can I remember I had an illustrator create the Um, make it make sense artwork for the podcast and she was phenomenal and she sent me 15 different illustrations I said no can you just take that back and send me your favorite six because they were all great and she'd kind of played with it and understood the concept and Mm. created it in so many different formats that all of them could have fit.
1: I like it because it's got a very um, Escher-esque style where it's kind of like (laughs) it's so beautiful
0: exactly and it 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 was really clear when she then simplified it and and gave me Mm. I think six at the end and um I think it's such a hard thing when you're not the creator and you see things that um where the artwork is beautiful to make Mm -hmm. that distinction because really you're going on feel I guess of when you see something and then the context of what the book uh sits in for it to to be one new pick. And so then what do you think is the most important for you to kind of encapsulate? So the title goes on first, but in terms of the imagery, is it the story, the pitch? What is it that really brings it together for you or is it always different in each uh,
1: project? Um, I think majority of the time it's the story. Um, I, I think that that tends to be the front runner of how it moulds kind of my ideas um I think briefs can be really exciting for me as well especially if I get a brief and I find it wildly different to what I've done before I find that that really excites me um so yeah I think it for me even if it's not my kind of cup of tea title I still love it for what it is and what the challenge it is it brings um to me and I think I I never try and see it as a negative challenge it's always a positive challenge and you know every now and then as well as a designer you're going to get rejected first round concepts mm-hmm. and um instead of seeing that as oh you know i'm i'm doing this wrong kind of thing i'll be like okay great how can i completely send all my inspiration to the trash um, in my head, and then completely renew kind of my way, way of thinking. I, I find it it's a great challenge. Hopefully, never doesn't happen that often because I, you know that would stress me as well <laughs> um, yeah. with the amount of work that I've got on. But like I, I always try and see it as a positive thing, kind of like how can I how can I use this blank canvas as you know a way of bringing this book to life.
0: When, when
1: you, in
0: the very rare times that it might be rejected on the first round, um, is there feedback that would help you, or is it really blank canvas and just go at it again?
1: Um, I think you know every book is different. Um, feedback for me, I try uh, like it is very important. Like I did this book called um, Ariadne. Um, and by uh, Jennifer Saint, which is a beautiful book and I loved the manuscript. Um, Thank you. But that cover went through, gosh, I would say about 15 rounds of tweaking Um, Uh and it looked wildly different from my first round concept to what it is today. And for me, I would have never gone to that cover without um, uh, the senior designer Siobhan helping me, um, kind of us collaborating together, kind of, you know, Siobhan would be like, what do you think about maybe trying this and stuff like that? Um, and, you know, I I have to really thank her because she helped me really mould that first cover to what it is today. Um, so, you know, I I, despite me being the designer and the artist on most covers, um, there is always a journey of feedback um Mm -hmm. that plays a massive role in um in every book design um because you have all the execs putting in their notes into it you Mm -hmm. have what the you know editor wants um very rarely does the author have a massive say in what the final cover will be but um and you know it is trusting your publishing team to to get to the right cover they think is right for the book Mm -hmm. um but, you know, everyone has a bit of input in the cover at the end of the day.
0: It's so, I mean, I've learnt this now, having done this podcast and spoken to so many authors now, but that really was one of the most, intri- well, shocking things really, that you don't <laughs> have that. Big, it, it does make sense in this, in um, when you look at how much your editors and how much uh, experience mm. everyone within the industry has and how much authors have to lean on that. Um, once in the process but it just always blew my mind that it wasn't the author saying yes <laughs> for my story that yeah. cover but of course um, it also makes sense that they also know what's out there in the market mm-hmm. and what you're competing against on bookshelves and so forth. Um, It is
1: that blind trust on your publishing yeah. team isn't it? as an author yeah. going okay well um, because there, I know that there are some authors that haven't liked their final cover but in the end it does sell very well and you know Mm -hmm. it's trusting that your team knows best um for you again you know with self-published authors which I do work um with a handful every year because I I always try and make time for some self-published authors um as 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 much as I could give all my time to self-publishing um I do try and at least give some of my time to self-published authors but that's you know it flips it on its head they have they are the only ones are part of the journey to the mm-hmm. cover design. Mm-hmm. So it's collaborating with the authors um, and only the authors really. So yeah, yeah it's fascinating. <laughs>
0: yeah, it is. So we know that US and UK covers mm. can be different. Um, mm. Do you work on both? How does it work mm. if you're brought a US cover? How does that happen?
1: Yeah. Um, I think for me, because of my, I've been many years as a freelancer and I've had, uh, you know, I would say 50% UK clients, 40% US clients, and 10% Australian, Canada, Mm -hmm. Europe, elsewhere. Um, You have to know the market. And I think I spend, I spend a lot of time trying to understand the u.s market as much as i understand naturally the uk market because i've been brought up in the uk market um and then again with the european market um and you know canada and australia um so basically i spend a lot of time trying to figure out kind of oh what's selling in the u.s why is it selling kind of what's what the journey of the cover is for the sales figures and um and understanding kind of why people like it a Bookstagram and uh, talk is very helpful in understanding kind of what the younger generation are really enjoying as covers as well. Um, and so I try and mold my ideas for my US clients in, in understanding the US market and the same I do with every country client that I work for. Um, yeah so it is wildly different and it's very fascinating when I had to learn that kind of how different the subtleties in each genre is in every country. Um, so yeah and I think you know it's it's a great challenge um, and I think eventually knowing these things makes me a better designer because I have to kind of turn on different buttons for mm-hmm. the different markets. Um, so yeah um, I find it It's a great challenge. (laughs) Mm.
0: And is it when you say keeping an eye on the market for someone who Mm. hasn't worked and had the amount of experience that you have, what would that mean? Would that be keeping on top of the covers that are coming out?
1: Yeah, I think um, so most going back to briefs, most briefs will put comparative covers, Mm. but I can tell that majority of the briefs that I get, it's the comparative covers are the ones, the books that have sold. Um, mm-hmm. so they're like these are the ones that sold and these are the covers that are selling um, and so that does help kind of inform me what is actually selling um, I think yeah it does definitely play a massive role in how I shape the way I look at things um, but in terms of knowing the market without the briefs I tend to just go on um. Barnes Noble for America um, and Waterstones for um, the UK or Dimmicks for Australia um, that play a massive role in selling books. So then it's kind of looking at what's on the charts. Um, also, I'm kind of, uh, I've signed up to the bookseller for publishing in the UK. Mm-hmm. So all your news comes from the bookseller and kind of what's happening in the UK market. Um, mm-hmm. So I tend to keep an eye on Um, the top 50 charts every week and seeing kind of what is selling and then I'll go out of my way to read those books as well because um, I want to understand why they're selling and stuff Um, Mm -hmm. and then looking at the covers Um, so yeah it's I put a lot of effort into Mm -hmm. trying to understand that you know you've you've got Publishers Weekly which is the US version of the bookseller um, and understanding kind of what the latest news is for that and kind of what the Mm -hmm. what's hitting the charts um So, yeah, I do put a lot of work into understanding that so then I can gauge kind of how to create covers that sell as well as make them look nice. (laughs) (laughs) Makes sense.
0: Um, And is there a general aesthetic that um, you lean to or um, different genres lean to? Do you Mm -hmm. work within different genres and follow certain formulas or rules?
1: Yeah, I think um every genre has its limitations and rules, as y- you would mm-hmm. put it. Um uh, so for example, you know, fantasy has certain things, and fantasy is a great example of UK and US market. They're wildly different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's understanding kind of what the US market want to see on a fantasy cover and what the UK market want to see on a fantasy cover. So, you know, the US do have a lot of fantasy covers with um, characters on the covers, while the UK don't like to put characters on the covers as much. um, I'm saying that, you know, like every book is different and sometimes yeah. they don't follow those yeah. rules and it's knowing what's best for the book, but mm-hmm. it's also engaging that. And, you know, for crime and thriller for you know your commercial crime and thriller you wanted to look like a crime and thriller you know Mm. dark stormy skies you know punchy Mm. yellow type and you know that kind of um formula but um it's then I think the beauty about knowing your limitations is then going how can I play with those limitations and I read this beautiful book once where it was talking about kind of embracing limitations and this um it was talking about music there's only certain certain amount of notes and you know colors there's only a certain amount of colors you can make from the primary colors um but then using those to your advantage so um yeah I think it's finding what works um with the limitations you're giving so you know and that will be genre that will be audience that will be the market um um and then kind of working from there but it's it's also following the trends, because you know what, 10 years ago crime really didn't really look like that. They it had a different formula and now it's all about the Pantone colored type, um, and then a kind of a dark image, silhouette walking away, a yellow window, you know, that kind of stuff. But it's like, how can I make this look very different? Whilst using those, you know what's popular in the market. Um, yeah, and,
0: you know, and also for readers to be able to identify what, you know, if if I'm someone that loves crime and thriller, I do also hmm. want to know that I can identify it as well. Yeah, it's and you know that
1: you're going to be like, oh, if I pick up this book that looks like another crime and thriller that I read, I'm going. I'm not going to be disappointed because there's a formula to it, and I think crime and thriller, especially, has a massive following. Um, mm. to those kind of limitations and um, knowing what you want, especially when mm. it's like mass market fiction, crime and thriller, um, you want to know tell your audience that this is a crime and thriller book. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: it's so interesting. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask about proofs versus cover designs. Do you work mm. on proofs? How does the shift happen? Because that's also something I learned that a proof is not mm. actual the fi- is not actually the final cover in most instances.
1: No, um, actually, that's it's the first person you're the first person to ever ask me that question. Um, so yes, I think again, ten years ago, most proofs were the final cover. And okay. you just send it out as a, you know, advanced reader copy. Um for, you know, for the US people listening in, proofs are ARCs. Um, you know, so in America they're called ARCs, advanced reader copies. In the UK, they're called book proofs. Um But now there's a beautiful new trend on trying Mm -hmm. to make book proofs look beautiful and inviting on their own with kind of elements of what the final cover is. And if there's no final cover, kind of how to make it look cool to invite people in. Um, So yeah, I do work not all the time, but I do work um, every now and then with a handful of marketing Mm -hmm. teams to create proofs as well. Um, And I I think for me, it's, it's, it's a it's great to work on proofs as well because it's a different kind of formula um and majority of the time you're not using the title Mm -hmm. even for the front cover you're using a lead in line for one for people to want to pick up the book Mm -hmm. um so yeah I think um because we're in the age of collecting editions and I think hardbacks Mm. are making a massive comeback um because people especially because of book talk and uh bookstagram a lot of people are now wanting collectibles so Mm. there's so many new Mm -hmm. special editions you know you've got your waterstone Mm. special editions your Barnes and noble special edition your indie special edition your book subscription box special editions um because people are just loving create collecting beautiful Mm -hmm. kind of editions um so I find that book proofs nowadays is, and especially in the UK market, is creating our um, own subtle special edition um, for people to collect as well. Um, so, yeah, I think yeah. It's, it's fascinating. Um, not every publisher does it. They usually, a lot of them still use just the final cover, but I know, um, you know, working at HarperCollins and uh, with the marketing team at HarperCollins as a freelancer, they're very good at kind of trying to create mm. something really fun and interesting yeah. for the book proof as well. Um, and using that as a creative realm for just, you know, trying to sell it on to people that mm. will review it and, um, you know, because it's at the end of the day, a good book, yeah. it's word of mouth. If the book is not great, you know, even mm. if the cover is beautiful, um, it's a beautiful kind of harmony when there's a gorgeous cover on the book, but then the book is actually really good. So then you want to start sharing it to people. Um, so, yeah, I think book proofs is, I think it's great to utilize making a, it almost like a collectible um, itself um, to forget, you know, to get people excited by the book. It
0: is such a nice kind of energy around it as well when people are posting and saying mm-hmm. they received their proofs and um, the fact that there's so much design already that's gone into it is is quite amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you said when you work on proofs, you speak to the marketing team. Who is it that you work with when mm. you're working on the cover designs is it the marketing team and editors or who's in on those meetings
1: no so um majority of the 90% of the time i get hired for the main cover by the art director um and but if I'm working on the proofs, I'm working with the marketing team because they're the ones that are getting the proofs out there. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting how kind of you know different parts of cover design work with different teams. Um, some some publishers, especially indie publishers, I work mainly with the publishing directors mm-hmm. rather than because they don't have an art director. Um, so yeah, it's 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 fascinating. I think the beautiful thing about um, Becoming a freelance designer is the amount of connections I've now been able to make with loads of different teams and also letting different art directors and different publishing directors help mould my design and mould me as a designer um, and illustrator to be better um and using their feedback to go oh I could use that feedback in something else in the future and then that can help mold what I'm doing in future designs um so yeah it's it's really it's a beautiful relationship um to build um not just with one team being an in-house designer but with Mm. multiple teams
0: and in was it in 2022, this year, that you won the British Book Awards for Designer of the Year? Yeah, it? congratulations! <laughs> yeah, it was
1: this Let's... year? So yes, it was. It was overwhelming oh. in positive ways and also negative ways, and it really kind of helped mould me as you know, as a designer, but also kind of in my identity and how I see and value Mm -hmm. myself and making sure that that doesn't blow up my ego Mm -hmm. at all and making sure that I'm centred in who I am as a person and not what awards that Mm -hmm. I've won and making sure that, you know, I'm still very supportive of all the designers around me, that I'm making sure that I'm not comparing myself ever to anyone um, and just championing everyone around me rather than making it a, a competition yeah.
0: i think that's um that's a really good point about not comparing to others around you because i think that's mm. easy to do in a creative industry and it's one of i think the worst things that people can do to get into their heads is comparison yeah. and um is that something you've learned in your work or you just never really did that
1: i think um i've learned it from My experiences, and I've learned it from watching uh, people above me um, do it in a way that I wouldn't do it, (laughs) um, I guess. Uh, (laughs) That's my diplomatic way of saying. I think, um, you know, as I mentioned before, I'm an identical twin. Um, so my whole life has been compared, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the moment my sister and I walk out on the street together, we get compared. Um, so I think naturally we've grown up with this kind of stereotype of, oh, I can judge twins when they're standing next to each other and yeah they're probably used to it kind of thing and I'm just like gosh the amount of therapy I had to go through to do that you know to not compare myself to my sister or even just be like who's faster mm. who's smarter who's more creative um who's going to win this uh running competition you know who, um oh you know she's won one award what other awards has her mm-hmm. sister done and la 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 so it's not fun but I think that played a massive role in allowing me to go okay I'm not going to as a designer not going to compare myself because there are so many designers that I admire and love what they do um and it's it's incredible I'm completely in awe but the moment I go oh I wish I could be like that or I'm I could never do that and then get a bit insecure about how I do. I'm like, no, you know, people hire me for my style. People hire them for their style. And, you know, the longer you are in this business, the more your style will eventually evolve. And for me, I always try and move on my style so that it doesn't get stuck somewhere. So I use that as, again, going back to challenges, I see it as a positive challenge going, oh, if I am in awe of these designers, how can I move on my style so I can, you know, get a new style into kind of what I can do and stuff. So I use that as a I'm so inspired by Mm. you rather than I'm intimidated by you.
0: It's also partly this scarcity complex, isn't it, that you think that that person's Mm. got that cover and you would have liked it or whatever it is that there's not enough to go around, but actually there is enough to go around for everyone. Yeah, and I think that's what you're kind of (laughs) stopping yourself from accepting Mm. that you know your time comes or you're not the cover will come when it should I know it's hard when there's rejection or or you're not getting work in but I always think if you can try and focus on that there's enough for everyone Mm -hmm. then that's a better position to be in than to be comparing and kind of being in that frustration of that lack
1: yeah and I think it's sharing as well like um if i get briefs that i can't do i always ask the client do you want recommendations cuz there's so many people that i know and that are my friends mm-hmm. that are freelance designers that i can send their way and they've you know i've had friends that do the same thing and send work mm-hmm. my way and i think you know the more open you are to sharing these things mm-hmm. the better um and you know the better you support your community and you know the people in the same profession as you so yeah, yeah. Oh, nice <laughs> um
0: what what is your favorite and least favorite thing about the creative process um favorite th-
1: favorite thing mm. is You know, being able to come up with ideas, um, and you know, every book is always going to be different, um, and even if they're alongside something that you've done before, it's like, how can I bring fresh ideas to this book? Um, and again, as I said, collaboration with uh, lots of different publishers, um, and self-pub authors, um, I think there's so many things I could say. This is my favorite thing about the cover design process. I think it's 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 a wonderful thing. You know, um, even going to into Waterstones and seeing your your work on the bookshelves or you know there's been times where my covers are on the window displays and you know it's it's very exciting and then you know also a favorite thing is getting to know authors and um having those kind of relationships and yeah so I majority of what I do is my favorite thing (laughs) because you know you don't work a day in your life if you enjoy your job um the least favorite things I would say I wouldn't say least favorite because I'd like to see it as a challenge the most challenging things is um I think it's very it's I've had to learn to from the get-go to be okay when someone says nope don't like any of them start again um so I wouldn't say that's my least favorite thing because you know it is always part of the job and you know I every year I get a couple of killed projects um and uh, for me, the way I see it is maybe I'm not the right designer for this project. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. hopefully, they find the right designer for this project and just move on. You know, um, it, it's to get stuck on that is very hard um, for yourself and for your creative process. Because for me, creatively, I need to be calm and you know, in this level, I mean, for me, my desk has to be Mm -hmm. clean in order for me to create my inbox and my email inbox has to be clean before I start designing. Um, So, you know, um, there are challenging things, but I would say, you know, when when covers are killed, that it can be quite challenging when um, there are Hundreds of tweaks in which you feel like you've lost the will to live. is can be challenging. Um, and I've got, you know I've got this um sign on my my computer screen that says pick your battles. Mm-hmm. And you know there are some times where I'm very passionate about a certain mm-hmm. design, and it gets you know something I like to call a franken. It becomes a Frankenstein cover where it's just had so many mm-hmm. inputs, so many different ideas put into one cover and it loses the um, original essence that I wanted for that cover and you know sometimes I try um, to fight Mm. back and push back and then there are other times where I'm like look at the end of the day it is what it is i can't win every battle and there are certain things that i'm being asked where i could fight about it or i could just do it and just move on um and that's something i really had to learn because there are times where i used to get really frustrated about it um and you know i'm not perfect and you know when i was in house i used to just get really frustrated and not want to talk to anyone because i'm like oh i can't stand this um but you know over the years i've tried to learn you can't win everything and you just have to choose the battles that you really want to push for. And even if you don't see the outcome that you want, know that you did try and fight for it and then move on. Um, Yeah.
0: That's a great note. That's a great note, especially I would think creatively speaking, because mm -hmm. it's hard to, if you don't do that, it's hard to, as you said before, come back from what feels like rejection at times And Mm -hmm. I think if you look at it in the way that you've presented it, that you're picking what you fight for, then you kind of do have Mm -hmm. to move on because you've tried your best. And then, you know, it's not always going to be the way that you see it. And I think, you know, I really
1: value when a cover has been killed um, from the first round, they're like, look, this is not what we're looking for. Like, for example, there was this one cover that I worked on um, for an Australian publisher um, and they hired me and I did my first rounds and they're like, "Look, this is not what I'm looking. We're looking for. Um, please send us your kill fee invoice." And because the joys of working with Australia, they're sleeping while you're working and they're working while you're sleeping. So I got that email in the morning and they had, you know, clocked off work. Um, and I was like, "Okay, they're asking for a kill fee, but I really love this book and I really want to win this book." I did a whole new round without them asking and I was like look if you're not happy I'm gladly send the kill fee." but I really you know I just um, n- I want to take your feedback notes it's hard when they say kill fee, no feedback notes no no to another second round shot I think for that is like come on you know give me another shot um, I want to know how I can mold myself to it but for this one, I was like, I'm just going to do it anyways. They're asleep <laughs> so I can send it to them. And then they came back to me and said, look, it's still not what we're looking for. And I was like, fine, happy with that. Maybe I'm not the right designer, but I yeah. gave it a shot. Um, And they let me, well, I mean, they had no choice because they were asleep, but <laughs> I sent them out a second round anyways. Um, but ironically, a few months later, I got an email back from them going, look, we went with other designers, but we still didn't think it was right. And we've gone back to one of your oh, designs. Wow. So we've, we reopened this. Um, and then I eventually got my cover onto their oh, book. Wow. Um, I got goosebumps. What was the book? So- <laughs> <egg? Can you laughs> yeah. <try>? Um, <laughs> it's called Below Deck yes, by Sophie Hardcastle. I haven't read it,
0: but I know it. Um, yes.
1: Oh, it's incredible. Um, it's it, that book blew me away and it was it was a, one of the best books i know i highly recommend to everyone so i look you know give it a shot i think it's hard for when when someone says not what we're looking mm. for i'm not giving you a second chance For that for me that's when i get really disappointed and that's probably i would say one of the hardest part of my job is when someone goes i don't think you're worthy of a second shot um then I'm like come on you know I just I just you know give me a second shot or you know like recently someone's like oh you've given me so much work to do because you didn't hit the brief and I was like um no because I'm asking for a second shot and just give me the chance to be able to redeem myself and if then I haven't been able to do it then yeah maybe I'm not the right person but we're
0: also learning how persistent you are because that's also another thing to be yeah. able to, I mean, that's, that's another level of, um, not entrepreneurship, but it's kind of that same sense of risk-taking because mm. you, of course, could have sent your kill fee for below deck, for instance, mm. and for your cover to be the hard cover, cover, that's a terrible way to say that, yeah. but that's literally <laughs> what it is, um, it's amazing because that's pure persistence on your end because you love the story and you really wanted to be the designer on
1: that. That's amazing. I mean, that's that's where my stubbornness comes <laughs> in see. handy. I see what
0: you mean now. <laughs> um,
1: and persistence. I mean, even um, I did a book called The Binding Um, and, again, another incredible book. I think for me, I when I read a manuscript and I'm so in love with it and so passionate about the manuscript, I do anything to try and get my, like, my work to succeed on that cover. And so for the, the binding, that was when I was in house in HarperCollins and my then art director always did this incredible thing when it was an event publication, which for those who don't know what an event publication is, is when the publisher is very excited about a book and they're going to put a lot of marketing budget behind it. They're going to really push for it on the sales. Um so it becomes, you know, an, an event publication. Um and so my art director used to open that brief up to everyone on the team mm. so everyone could oh, get a shot nice. at... Um, so, and it's like a friendly kind of like healthy yeah. competition um to everyone on the team and I was so stubborn I was like I love this manuscript so much I'm going to do everything in my every living and breathing moment I can to try and get my my covers on this onto this book and I think I ended up designing about 60 covers um for this book um all in my, my free time because they gave us enough leeway I was like and my boss was like we're trying to look at what the team has done on this date so I was like okay I have this amount of time to design and you know i was you know i'd design a cover and be like nope not good enough and then design another one to say okay maybe good enough potential i'll put in the maybe part and then i'd design something going okay good enough for the final kind of round and then like i'd sort through and i I swear to you about 60 covers did for that book and eventually um four out of the six covers that went to the cover meeting were mine which I was like i was like you know at the end of the day Whenever you're passionate about something, whether you're an author or a mm-hmm. designer or anything, um, you're, you're never, don't ever sit and wait for those opportunities to happen. Shove your foot through the door.
0: Okay, let's move on to the three things you'd like to make sense of. Um, Your first is there's no big book look button in Photoshop. Do you want to explain that
1: for us? (laughs) So um, the amount of times throughout my entire career, people was like, look, what we want on this cover and the pure brief is we want the big book look. And I'm like, what does that mean? Like, I don't know what that means. That makes no sense. And they're just like, we just wanna cover that sales. And I was like, again, I don't know what that means. I can make it as true to the book as I can, as true to the market I can. Um. So yeah, I look, for any editors, art directors, sales, publicists, marketers out there, please don't ever come to a designer and say we want a big book look for this cover because there's no such thing. Um and I will tell you why. At the end of the day, the success of a book, and this is what we've said before, is one, it can have a beautiful cover. And you know, um I've been very happy to see that some of my covers um get really good pre-sales. Um because a lot of, you know, people was like, I just love the cover. And I've had so many people on Instagram going, I just buy whatever book you you put on your Instagram because it's an automatic buy for me. And I was I'm like, why? And they're just like, because it's just beautiful. And that's that's great. Um, But again, that doesn't adhere to a big book look. And it doesn't um, equal the final sales of the book. And it doesn't guarantee a bestseller list um placement. um. So it's, it's then, you know, if I have a beautiful cover with something that again is like um, an incredible book and going back to The Binding, for example, that became a Sunday Times bestseller um, and it went, you know, it but it kept selling because it's a fantastic book. And if you haven't read that book, it's highly recommended. It's still one of my favorite books of all time that I've ever read and um, and, you know, then the word of mouth starts happening. Oh, my gosh, I've read this beautiful book. Not only does it have a great cover, but it's one of the best books I've read all year. Mm-hmm. And then they pass it to their mm-hmm. friend and tell their friends about it. And, you know, word of mouth is the best marketing tool in this industry. Um, and so you end up kind of people buying it because they've heard their friends raving about it or giving it great reads or, you know, Bookstagram goes crazy about it or talk, you know. Is resurrecting books that never made it into the bestseller list, like Colleen Hoover. Oh my gosh, she's a bestseller constantly now because of BookTok. Um, so uh, the success of a cover and the success of a book is purely about cultural awareness mm. and how good the harmony between what the content is and what the cover is. Um, so you know, you no, know, as a designer, the best you can do is do your market research know your audience, um know your manuscript, know kind of what is being asked, know where um and what covers it's going to sit amongst. Um and that's the best you can do. Uh,
0: I mean you must also oh I'm assuming this, but I'm because book talk has been such a avenue now um for introducing mm. books and for books to become viral, viral. Um, that, are people coming to you and saying, you know, that it has to be a good content piece essentially because all these books are being placed on Instagram or on TikTok and the mm-hmm. cover is what really catches people. Is that something that's even being part of the brief or it it's not alluded to specifically?
1: Yeah, I mean I get I get briefs where it's like we want it to be a book talk sensation. Easy. <laughs> and I'm like, again, Easy. what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. It's just like I don't I can't I can't do I can't guarantee that I can make again and the beautiful thing about what's happening at the moment in um publishing is that as I was saying there are so many special editions and there are so many collectibles on hardbacks these Mm. days that and less and less people are buying uh ebooks and more and more people are buying kind of books for their bookshelves Mm. you know and that's a beautiful thing about book talk is people having beautiful collections on their bookshelves so I you know and that's fun for me to kind of try and make a book very beautiful but um you can't guarantee Mm, anything. (laughs) So you can put on your brief, but I'm going to disregard it and try and be as true to the book itself as I can be more than anything.
0: Um, Your second thing you wanted to make sense of, and Mm. I can see it's also impacted your career as well. So the second thing was that there's a need for mentorship and better access.
1: Mm. I I think this is something I'm very passionate about. Um, I think um, in this industry, uh, there is, dare I say, not enough. Still, not enough traction as I'd I'd like to see in um, giving space for diverse voices, um, uh, people of different backgrounds to become um, publishers, editors, mm-hmm. uh, marketers. Um, we need more people in exec positions, um, and I th- I think that there's not still not enough mentorship programs and access and if there are and I think um, I'm not going to mention kind of what publishers are doing this but a, a great amount of publishers are creating BAME internships um, for people of colour but it stops there um, we're still not seeing enough people of colour in decision-making roles and I think that's that's where things start changing allowing people to be in the room. To make to have a voice in decision making in publishing. Um, and so I think there needs to be better mentorship programs. As I said, there's a lot of juniors that come in and are so overwhelmed with the amount of information that they have to learn. Um, and then, you know, I've seen in the past where they're told, oh, you're not, we're extending your probation period because you're not hitting these marks um, enough. And then, but you have to ask, have you sat down with them mm. and actually taught them? Mm. Um, Have you given them time to ask the same question three or four times until they learn? Um, And I think that we need to see better um, mentors, um, again, managers. I think for me, I've seen time and time again, a lot of managers, um, and this is, you know, this is not just in publishing but in a lot of um, dare I say it, um, companies where you promote someone into a managerial role because a they've been there long and for a long time um, and there's longevity in their commitment to the company or B, they're very talented at what they do so they get a manager role. Mm-hmm. And never in those two questions have you asked them, are you good with people? <laughs> Do you actually like people? Um, and you know, um, I've got a friend that works in Facebook, um, and they um what Meta do is they give you two streams you can choose from. You can choose from um managerial streams and you can choose from um creative streams. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want to be a manager and you don't want people underneath you or having to manage people, you can still get promoted on this side of the stream. Mm-hmm. Um, and then people that want to look after people and want to be managers can go on that mm. stream. But they have those options where you can still get promoted and still get more responsibilities, but it's not just becoming a manager. Mm. Um, and I think there's a danger in promoting people into managerial roles when when they're not willing to learn to grow and teach and lead people. Mm. Um so I think we need to we need to start seeing um those roles as um, you know, as for what they are, mm. you know. Is this person going to be great with the team? Are they gonna take time? Because it takes time to teach people, you know, especially when you've got juniors that are trying to learn everything at once, to make sure that you take time to sit with them and not be, oh I'm too busy, I've got too many meetings. Um And, you know, mentorship programs are great for that because then you can get people buddying up with someone that knows the ropes and has time to try and teach them. Um, My other side is, you know, you need better, for better access, we need to allow um, opportunities for people to come into, you know, into publishing despite their background, despite their class. Um, And I don't think... We're doing that, you know, and I see this all over the world. If you look at majority of publishing houses, they're all in capital cities, whether it's Sydney, Melbourne, uh, London, New York. They're not cheap cities no. to live in. They're very expensive cities. And if you're starting a junior at, say, you know, 21K, mm-hmm. but, you know, you for me without, you know, and I understand the privilege of my parents helping me at my first few years in London, because, you know, and my, my beginning salary, I think it was 21 K. There's no way I could have lived in London on just that. Um, Unless, you know, your house sharing or you've got family in London or you've got family that can help support mm-hmm. you. Um, And then you ask why we don't have di- uh, like enough diversity in publishing houses, mm-hmm. because then you go, okay, they don't have anyone in London, you know, or they don't have, you know, and there's been a lot of people that have, um, that I've heard of that do two jobs when they're starting out in publishing in order to survive in London. Um, And, you know, there was a great bookseller um, article that was talking about class and, you know, some authors were saying um, were constantly invited to events, but they didn't, if the publisher didn't pay for their um, travel, they wouldn't have been able to get there. And so, yeah, you know, on one side, Publishing are trying to open the doors for um for a better kind of um access for everyone. But if you're not making those changes for people to be able to survive in a capital city or survive, or even just as a midweight designer, have enough money to want to decide decide to start a family, then you're not going to create those opportunities for the people to get to exact positions.
0: You encapsulated the problem so well because it's this cyclical system really because the salaries are so low and so publishers are able to kind of keep the salaries at that level because there are people that are able to have parents to help pay for the rent or to stay at their parents for an extended period of time so that they can take a lower salary. And those people are definitely of a certain demographic and maybe that is, you know, a certain percentage of diverse uh, people are within that demographic, but it's definitely not the majority. It's still not a livable income. And so if you're not actually re-evaluating that, then you have the same people sitting in the boardrooms and in the meeting rooms, the same people understanding and accepting stories in a certain way. And I think that's why it becomes dangerous because you're not changing the standard and you're not changing the stories that are being told because everyone that's sitting in the room are the same sort of people and not to take away from other people's work. But again, there's enough to go around. There's enough to allow people to have access, like you say, and to have conversation and opportunity The third thing you wanted to make sense of was the importance of sharing your secrets, which I think is so, so good because it also kind of touches into that fear of comparison and the fear that's brought from comparison. I think that's Mm. um, such an important thing to do is to share.
1: Mm. I've been told constantly, why the hell do you share all your secrets? Because I'm like, look, I, I will be hired for what I do and, you know, and I don't. I don't want people to have to suffer or have Mm -hmm. to learn on their own you know I want to be open if someone asks me like I've had juniors that message me on Instagram going can I have a quick moment of your time on zoom just to pick your brain and I try as best as I can through my schedule to make time for that if I can um and to tell them what how I do things and you know everyone has their own way of doing things and they will eventually figure out what works best for them but if I don't if if we keep all our secrets to ourselves you leave people so in the dark you leave the juniors that are going to rise in this industry in the dark you leave the midweights who want to make a name for themselves and to make a mark in this industry in the dark um and you know I I might yeah it's 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 something that i'm very passionate about doing and you know i i want l- leaders and managers to to see it from that point of view you know um make sure that you are sharing your secrets because you want these people to be better than you and you want um, i want to see this industry thrive
0: If you enjoyed this episode of Make It Make Sense with Sri Kattanendra Dharaman, I would love if you would rate, review or subscribe to the podcast to help others find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Make It Make Sense.